Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Gwenda Bond is the New York Times bestselling author of many books, but her latest is the first official Stranger Things novel, Suspicious Minds. Her previous work includes the Lois Lane series, which brings the iconic comic book character front and center in her own young adult novels, and the Cirque American series about daredevil heroines who discover magic and mystery lurking under the big top. She also co-writes the Supernormal Sleuthing series with her husband, Christopher Rowe, and as if that wasn't enough, she also created Dead Air, a serialized mystery and scripted podcast on which she is a co-writer. She's been published everywhere from Publishers Weekly to the Los Angeles Times. She now lives in Lexington, but she's originally from down in my neck of the woods. We grew up mm-hmm. in neighboring counties in southeastern Kentucky. Welcome to On the Porch, Gwenda. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're certainly glad to have you. First of all, I want to tell you that you are living one of my childhood dreams. I used to love <laughs> to read books that were novelizations or spinoffs of TV shows or movies. And I always dreamed of one day doing that. I had all those books, you know, uh, Gremlins and E.T. and uh, <laughs> Happy Days and et cetera. But now you're involved with one of the most popular television, sh- television shows in history, Stranger Things, which is just the height of, of, of cool for me. So how did that, how did that happen? Well, um, it's funny, by the way, that you say you grew up reading novelizations. Christopher, uh, my husband, did too. They didn't have a movie theater in town, so he would always get novelizations of movies and read them. Um, That was kind of his way of of keeping up with the culture. I I was really lucky. I think the Lois Lane books and my other novels had put me on the radar of an editor at Random House who wanted to work together and thought of me when these novels were being plotted and asked if I'd be interested in doing one. And I immediately said yes, because I was a huge fan of the show. Um, And we just went from there. And basically it was, this will be a prequel about Eleven's mother. But my question, whenever I'm asked to work with somebody else's um, content is, you know, will I have the freedom to also kind of make it my own? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to disappoint my readers. Um, even though they are far fewer than the legions of the Stranger Things fans. You know, I want it to make sense for everyone involved. And they um, said, yes, you know, like the Duffers really want these books to be good. <laughs> and, you know, you can have the freedom to put your own stamp on it. And they were really uh, true to that, which is not always the case with, with these kinds of, of projects. Right. I was thinking it must be really daunting, uh, though, to take these iconic characters that I mean there's so much a part of pop culture now that if you are one of the few people who haven't seen the show there you you still get references to it you know and Mm -hmm. so to take these iconic characters and make them your own to some degree I mean that's the coolest part about it all but that the showrunners put that much trust in you but there must have been some stress involved i mean there's always stress involved with writing (laughs) there's always stress involved yeah yeah. (laughs) it is uh it's definitely a unique kind of stress when you're working with um something where uh people 
anytime you could Google and there's fan art of a character that you're writing or related to a, a series that you're working on, uh, it, it does add an extra level of pressure because you don't want to disappoint those fans. And so it's really important, I think, to understand kind of the essential qualities that make something what it is. And, you know, for Stranger Things, um, you know, I think what I had going for me from the get-go is that I grew up with the same pop culture DNA as the showrunners. Um, you know, we all clearly spent our childhoods obsessed with Stephen King novels and uh, evil government plots and, uh, you know, watching too many horror movies and Steven Spielberg movies. Um, and, you know, the first thing I did when I got hired was go back and read all of Stephen King's first books. Mm. Um so I think that that helps. And at a certain period, you just kind of have to forget a little bit about that. And also the deadline for writing this was was uh, a little crazy. Um, so that helps. Too. <laughs> like not having time to, to freeze up um, is, is helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes a deadline is the best thing in the world, <laughs> you know. Yes. <laughs> well, I've noticed that each of the books in the series is named for a song. So yours was the first uh -huh. of the Stranger Things book, and it's called Suspicious Minds. We heard that song as the intro to your interview, and the, the, most, <laughs> the most famous version of that is, I guess, by Elvis, but I'm partial to the mm -hmm. Dwight Yoakam cover. So, yeah. Um, and the, the second one is Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is, of course, from, mm -hmm. the, from Springsteen. So why did they choose to take this music angle on the series? Well, so it's it's funny. I sent in some some suggested titles, and then one of the editors on the series had this great idea, which I think music is so important to the series. And there's a lot of music in my novel. Um, you know, I only listened to music from the year 1969 while I was writing it, which is actually a great year for music, and it was a wonderful playlist. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Suspicious Minds was released that year. It was Elvis's big hit of that year. Um, and so that was where the title came from. And then um, the second book is set in roughly the era when that, when that album came out. Right. And so that's that's what they did. But it's so funny because some people don't necessarily know the song, like especially yes. younger fans. And so they are very curious about like, well, what does the title mean? <laughs> mm. Yes. Well, yeah, they both, the titles work really well thematically and tonally for these books. And I can see what you're saying. It's easing us into the 80s, right? And into the present story of mm -hmm. Stranger Things, yeah. Um, well, why don't you read a little bit of Suspicious Minds for us? Sure. Um, I'm going to read um, a section of one of the new characters I created. That gave Eleven's mom kind of her own friend gang in the uh, in the college who are in the experiments that Dr. Brenner's being run. And so this is um, when they've been dosed with acid, a character named Alice on the first day that they're at the lab. Alice stuck the screwdriver into the head of a pulsing, vibrating screw. Stop moving, she ordered it. But then everything around the screw, wires and tooth pieces that fit together, started to thump like a heartbeat. There was only one thing to do, disassemble this machine entirely. Then she could figure out how it was alive. Or was that the paper they put on her tongue? It was probably the paper, but it felt real. The evidence was right in front of her. The door to the room opened and Alice angled her head to see who came in. It was the main doctor, Martin Brenner, of the wavy hair and smile like he'd gone to a finishing school to learn it. 
What is it, he asked, and Dr. Parks pointed in Alice's direction. Alice turned back to the machine, which hummed and pulsed at her, trying to get her attention. Okay, okay, she said, don't get jealous. The nice orderly had brought a tray covered in tools. She exchanged the screwdriver for a set of pliers. They were big and clumsy in her hands, and she didn't like that, but she jabbed them into the heart of the machine and then gently twisted some wires free. A presence beside her, kneeling. What's she doing to the electrocardiogram? Brenner asked. He should have asked her. She was right next to him. I'm taking it apart to figure out why it's alive. Interesting, he said and stood. Let's try some electricity. I'm curious how she reacts to it. Dr. Parks sounded skeptical. This is supposed to be a baseline day. I'm not sure. I am, Dr. Brenner said. He came to Alice's side. I'm going to need you to lay back for a few minutes while we add a new treatment. You want to turn me into a machine, Alice said, but I already am one. We all are. The orderly took her arm and a chill passed through Alice. He took the pliers from her fingers and placed them on the table. I don't like this, Alice said. It won't hurt, Dr. Brenner said. She didn't merit one of those smiles this time. He rolled over another machine. The glowing Dr. Parks had a shadow around her halo now. She attached some wires to Alice, cool sticky circles pressed onto the skin of her temples. Alice should tell them she didn't want this. The first jolt turned her into a crack of lightning. The second sent her far inside herself. Disoriented flashes of light and dark surrounded her, and she couldn't get her bearings. A crumbling wall in front of her cracked and overgrown. Spores like tiny tumbleweeds drifted through the air. She tried to catch one, but her fingers closed on nothing. What was this? Breathe, Alice, breathe. It's the medicine and the electricity. The swaying vines and crumbling concrete of the darkly beautiful ruins vanished, replaced by a sky full of moving stars. She could stay a while in this quiet, confusing place in her mind where images tumbled into one another, walls into stars into grass. She could hide here beneath reality until Dr. Brenner and his bad electricity left her alone. Mm, thank you. That's from Suspicious Minds, the first Stranger Things novel by Gwenda Bond. And that's available wherever fine books are sold. This is WUKY 91.3 FM, listener-supported radio. We are on the porch with author Gwenda Bond, and I'm your host, Silas House. Gwenda, you're someone who talks a lot about the importance of writing community. So can, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how that community has lifted you as an artist? Absolutely. Um, I've always been really lucky to... Um, I was lucky to stumble onto an extended writing community uh, and make friends with some writers that I really admired, uh, right? I mean, from the time I was in high school on, I think. Um, and some of them, you know, I'm still friends with many of them. Um, you know, like people I would be so intimidated by if I was meeting them now, um, like Kelly Link, you know, introduced Christopher and I, and is one of our oldest friends, and um, Ted Chang. Uh, and so lots of people in the science fiction and fantasy world were kind of the first people uh, that I became friendly with. And mm. then I had a day job for many years in Frankfurt. So most of my writing friendships were virtual. But once I was able to leave my job and be a full-time writer, I was able to meet a lot more people here and spend a lot more time in the local community. Uh, and, you know, we have a writing group here that has um, a lot of speculative fiction writers who are in this area, general area, and um, it's incredibly important, especially during the pandemic, I think, having those people to process things with and to cheer each other on and try and hold each other accountable has been really important. 
Yes, absolutely. I wonder if that's one reason that you're so prolific because you have such a great support system. I may be uh, counting incorrectly, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you've published 15 books. Um, I think I've only published like 13, but I've sold 15. <laughs> okay. And that, and in a pretty short time too, like that's in less than yeah. 10 years, right? Yes. This is the first year I haven't had a new book out Um and it couldn't have happened in a better year, actually. Um, but yeah, for mm. I was kind of one of those um, late blooming overnight successes. Like my yeah. first book was published in 2012, um, and then I was publishing a couple of year, uh, yeah. more or less, for the next few years thereafter. Right. So, so you must be the kind of writer who has more than one project going at a time. Then, I guess, right. I do, but I don't really actively work on more than one thing very well, with the exception of if, if something is a collaborative project, I can go back and forth, mm -hmm. uh, because I think collaborative projects bring their own kind of special energy with them, uh, and you don't want to let another person down. So even if you're kind of almost empty, you'll dig a little deeper and, and find something for that person. Um, but generally speaking, I like to just keep my nose to the grindstone on one project and maybe have some other things on the back burner. Um, but I'm not one of those people who can multitask and write two books at the same time, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And do you have a really strict schedule you go by or do you just sort of write whenever <laughs> you want to write? Uh, <laughs> Uh, Pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? Um, I'm curious to hear how your writing has been affected by the pandemic. Uh, I struggled to finish a book that was due earlier in the summer, and I just turned it in. Mm -hmm. Luckily, it was a little bit, we had some time, so it's not going to mess anything up. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely threw my process completely into arrears. Like, it's very, for me, it's very much about the energy to focus. Um, and that was just really hard for the six months that we've been learning how to live in yes. this new normal and with all the extra stresses and anxieties that come along with it. it. It is really interesting to hear how people react to it differently. You know, I know so many writers who just haven't been able to really focus. Um, for me, I always write, I, I work better when I'm unhappy and so, <laughs> so I've been pretty productive. I don't know. Good or bad. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm just one of those writers that um, I'm, I'm writing my way out of misery often, you know. And so the pandemic. <laughs> well, yeah, been... I was writing a comedy, so that was I was writing a comedy, and this is not a this is not a good time to be yes. writing a comedy. Right. <laughs> well, now, do you have two books coming out next year? Is that right? Um, one, well, the first one, well, it's a duology. It's a, a romantic comedy mm -hmm. um, duology in the vein of Good Omens or uh, The Good Place. Um, Alex Harrow just actually gave gave me a great blurb. Um, one of our colleague friend writers down in Berea, which was, uh, so the first one's called Not Your Average Hot Guy. And it is about a girl who lives here in Lexington who's 22 and is working at her family's escape room business because she can't find a job with her history degree and gets embroiled in some world-saving adventures with the son of the devil. Oh, wow. um, and so Alex's, Alex's pitch is much better than mine, though, which was, 
it's the it's like the the good place was two hundred was twenty percent nerdier and two hundred percent steamier. <laughs> <laughs> so these were really fun books to write. They were sort of a break after the darkness of Stranger Things, and now I think I might write another horror novel next. Right now, are those young adult novels? Or are they for an adult audience? They're not. They are. They're kind of crossover. I do think that a lot of teens will read them because the characters are twenty-two, mm-hmm. um, and they share a lot of that DNA in common. But the characters are a little older, and um, they're being published for adults by St. Martin's. So the first one will be out in October, and then the second one will follow at some point within the next six months. Now, is this the first time you've set a book in Kentucky? Uh, other than Dead Air, the the serial uh-huh. um, project that I did, um, which is about a UK journalism student, it's mm-hmm. I think it is the first time I have a book that's partly set here, uh, and which was fun. I mean, actually, I started writing those two again after I became a full time writer here, and so I felt like I had more time that I could go, like really immerse myself in little local places and. Um, Yes. And that sort of thing, and and put those things in. And same for Dead Air. Dead Air was an idea I had literally the first week that I was uh, working from home. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I want to set a book. I want to do a fake um, true crime set in the horse world, you know, in Kentucky. And I was obsessed with true crime podcasts, as so yes. many of us are at that time. So I I kind of wanted to examine what what was so obsessive about those through a character instead of myself. Right. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. Um, I really love following you on Twitter, and I want to <laughs> recommend to everyone out there to find Gwenda. Her, her handle I is apologize simply, in advance. <laughs> <laughs> no, her handle is simply at Gwenda, G-W-E-N-D-A. And well, Gwenda, you do not hesitate to get political on there. Is, is that something? <laughs> no, I do not. It's like politics and dogs and everything that I love, you know? So is that something that, uh, <laughs> is that, something that ever gives you pause, that whole idea that, you know, people will say a writer should shut up and write or that a singer should shut up and sing? How do you respond mm-hmm. to that? Well, for one thing, I really wasn't able to be political online for like the 17 years that I had a day job working with the press in um, in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And so the minute that I was able to express my opinion without it being a conflict of interest <laughs> with my job, um, I was absolutely like chomping at the bit to do it because I've always been really engaged. And, you know, I don't think that they're I mean, I think we do live in unusual times. But I also think that choosing not to say anything um, is also a political choice. Yes. And um, I, I don't know. It just feels more honest, especially when I was writing for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for them, it can be a real lifeline to see an author that they read who agrees with them if they're surrounded in a community um you know, where they don't really get to see a diversity of opinions or they feel left out. And, you know, most of the feedback that I get from readers is is of that nature, like Mm -hmm. just really positive that they are able to follow somebody that's, especially people from the South, um, that shares kind of their own opinions that they don't really feel like they can be out there with in their small town communities. Yes, I'm with you. I think that, you know, the more we can empower people who are seen as the other, 
um, any way that we yes. can. Yeah. Well, one reason, as I mentioned, one reason I love your tweets is because your dogs often feature in them. And <laughs> I don't know how we could have made it through this pandemic without our dogs. Oh. So what is it about having animals around you that's so sustaining? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know how people without pets are making it through. Yeah. So, yeah, we have three dogs. Uh, two youngish border collie um, mixes and one grumpy old man um, and uh, and two cats who are super active as well. Uh, it's a lot of female energy. <laughs> Christopher has one, one ally in the house. Um, they really are. I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's really easy to get stuck in your own head. I think, especially for writers, mm-hmm. um, and for people with anxiety, which I have. And so dogs force you out of that. You know, they force you to get up and take a walk and go outside and play. And no matter how crappy the rest of the world is, you can make your dog happy pretty easily by paying attention to it. So, Yes, I get the best ideas for my riding when I'm walking my dog. It, it Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an essential part of the process, really. It, it truly is. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. I know that we both Uh-oh. love the Ashley Bloom's book, Every Bone of Prayer. Oh, yeah. And we have her lined up to be on the show. But what other books would you recommend right now? Oh, gosh. Well, Alex Harrow, who I mentioned earlier, has a brand new book out, which I loved even more than her first book called The Once and Future Wishes. Mm-hmm. And Ashley and uh, Alex and I are all in writing group together. Oh, okay. Um, yes. We have a really good writing group, uh, and there's a couple books that have not been announced yet or will be out in the next couple of years by other writers in that um, that you should totally talk to when that happens. Yes. Um, it's a it's a really exceptional group of, of people. Um, let's see. I just read a book by Catherine Addison called The Angel of the Crows that is a, um, a sort of a fantasy take on Holmes and Watson with a lot of gender uh, exploration and trans issues, but set in the past um, that I just knocked me out because it was one of those books that it's what I call a meeting of life thriller uh, where it's a page turner, but it's really about these super deep issues. Those are kind of tend to be my favorite books. Um, so yeah, those are a few that I have loved recently. Um, oh, and uh, Maggie Smith's poetry collection. Yes. Um, so good. Yes. There's so many great books out this year. I hope that they are finding the audiences that they deserve. Right. I teach with Maggie Smith, and she's just so wonderful. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Such a talented poet. Yes, she is. How do you think being from a little rural place in southeastern Kentucky shaped you as a writer? I mean, hugely. Uh, I'm sure you also feel like you grew up surrounded by women who told stories mm-hmm. um, and men too, to an extent, but especially my grandmothers were both champion storytellers, particularly of ghost stories. Yeah. And my parents were both in the education system and were always reading and always gave us pretty unfettered access to books. Um, and also I think like for a large part of my childhood, I deeply resented being from there, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I think, most Kentucky kids go through at some point. And then I flipped a complete 180. Like the minute I got to college, I decided to obstinately kind of like, no, I'm going to own this complicated place that I'm from. And I love it here. And 
is it perfect? No, is anywhere perfect? And, you know, it's a very misunderstood uh, place. And I think really the crux of things for me was in journalism school. I had a professor who's still a dear friend who really wanted to push me into broadcast journalism. And uh, and I basically just said, no, I can't do it because I refuse to lose my accent. Yeah. I don't think that's a good uh, practice that, you know, you have to have that sort of edges filed off accent to do broadcast news. Um, and it is creating this homogenized culture that leaves out people who, you know, don't talk that way. Um, so, yeah, I think it definitely shapes um I think there's just it gave me that obstinate. Well, I'll do what I I'll do whatever I want. I don't yeah. you know, uh, you know. I remember a professor at Eastern. I had forgotten about this, but my mom reminded me that I got super angry at when I was a freshman in college uh, because he was shocked that I had read so many books, being from Jackson County. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> and, I think I had the same <laughs> professor. <laughs> And the same experience. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Probably so. I actually ended up giving him a reading list because we got into a big fight because he didn't believe you could read books that had been published less than 100 years ago. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, that basically just means you get to read like dead white guys for life. Like, right. no. And so he did actually read. Uh, I gave him a list. I don't remember everything that was on it, but I remember he read Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children and gave me a book report on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Well, I asked you, we got to talk a little bit before the show about music, and um, I asked you uh, what song you'd like to close the show down with, and and one that you chose was Everything is Free by Gillian Welch, and I just love your reason for loving this song. So can you share that with our readers? What it is you Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think Gillian Welch is one of like the, the best storytellers that we have period in any medium. Um, and Christopher and I saw her at the Kentucky theater sing that song right after she had come out of the, she had just come out of recording studio. And so she and uh, David Rawlings were very punchy and it was a very relatable sort of, sort of evening because, you know, we all know that liminal space that you're in when you just finish a big project and then go out in public for the first time. Um, and uh, so everything's free. I think it, really sums up that the modern ethos of um, feeling like our work is devalued often, but the core of being an artist is that you will always find a way to do it and finding a way to do it on your own terms. Um, That, you know, even if you're not making money, you know, you can always reboot and go back to the basics. Um, And she just has such a wise and angry and lovely way of expressing all that in that song. Great. Yes, it's a great song. I'm so glad you chose it. Um, well, it's a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you too. Uh, thanks for having me on. And thank all of you for listening to another episode of On the Porch here on WUKY 91.3 FM. Be sure to go out and get a copy of Suspicious Minds by Gwenda Bond. And if you possibly can, buy it at your local independent bookstore. Until next time, be good to one another. Here's Gillian Welch. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, 
and we thank you for joining us.